0: This podcast is powered by SportString, your digital water
1: cooler. Welcome everybody to the third episode of Caught in the Net. Uh, I'm your co-host Dave Severns, along with uh, my friend and co-host and. Uh, Basketball uh, savant, I'm going to call him Mike Procopia. How you doing, sweet Chuck?
2: Seb, what the fuck is a savant anyway? I hear that with all these so-called <laughs> fucking geniuses in basketball? Hey, one of your favorite
1: is. movies is Goodwill Hunting, no, and no. our guy was a, he was a math savant.
2: Okay, okay. I'm just wondering. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, I'm just yeah. wondering. I'm not used to people actually saying good words about me, so I just was wondering what the. Fuck I've is a
1: I've I've caught you drawing plays. On walls of, uh, you know, of buildings, just like he was doing math programs on those walls outside the classroom. I've seen you drawing plays before. Like The only
2: that. plays that I've ever drawn up is how to get to the fucking restaurant in, in, in the smallest amount of fucking time. That's the only thing I draw up. I don't understand yeah. these guys drawing shit up, you know. Like, like, yeah, Abe, Abe
1: Lemons once said, there's only two good plays, you know, South Pacific and put the ball in the basket.
2: Yeah, I I I remember at a, I was at a coach's clinic, and uh, Charlie Spoonhour was speaking wow. with Bobby Huggins in Atlanta. This is like ninety eight, ninety nine, I think ninety eight. And you know, Spoonhour was like drawing shit up, and you know, and fucking Huggins just came into the room because he was speaking next. He just came in, he raced all of Spoonhour's shit, <laughs> and he goes, "Do you know what? You know what matters more than fucking all these tricky plays?" He goes, if these things and the X's, and he drew up these giant fucking X's on the board, and then he goes, if these things are bigger than these things, he goes, like, two giant X's and two small O's, he goes, if your X's are bigger than the O's, yeah. it's all that fucking matters. If my players are better than your players, I'm going to fucking win a game. So I don't want to hear this shit. Yeah. It was great. Give
1: me, tricky, give me tricky players, not tricky plays. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly <laughs> right. So anyway, uh, anyway, well, welcome to our third episode. We're going to get into a little bit, sweet Chuck, today, mm-hmm. uh, a history of this thing called player development. Um, and like you and I've said a couple of weeks ago, you know, we used to just call it working with players and you know coaching. And right. now, now it's uh, it's called player development. And is it true that if it's if it's not on social media, that it actually could have occurred, yeah. It, back in the '80s and '90s,
2: it definitely could have occurred. You know, I know Paul Revere's fucking ride <laughs> wasn't fucking filmed by twelve video guys, but it does occur. Uh, shit does occur that's
1: not online. Okay. Anyway, we're we're going to go back and kind of give our thoughts on on how we saw this thing develop and and people that we kind of associated with the development of, of of this thing that we call player development. My my first recollections of even hearing about this thing, player development and guys working in the summer uh, came, you know, from Pete Newell. Pete Newell is an old, uh, legendary, you know, one of the greatest college coaches ever, you know Cal, USF, Michigan State. Uh, and if you don't know anything about Pete Newell, just check out his record when he coached at Cal against John Wooden. And that's all you'll need to know is how great of a coach he was. But, you know, after he was done coaching, maybe this was in the late 70s, Sweet Chuck, mid to early 80s when he had, you know, this what he called a big man camp. And I believe it was in Hawaii uh, where he worked strictly with, you know, big players on footwork and things like that. That's the first time I'd really heard of anything uh, specific toward player development.
2: Yeah. I mean, it was the same thing for me. I, I never really heard much about it. I, I I read, you know, in the Boston Globe or something about like some of the players going to Hawaii to work with this camp. And then, you know, I, I Googled it. I tried, you know, you didn't really have a lot back then. But then I've heard about this big man camp. He actually put out a couple of videos. And to right. me, yeah, to me, look, we all in coaching, we saw the, you know, the Mike and drill and, when we went to camps and stuff and we saw big man development. But then, like the footwork and all the stuff that he was doing with big guys. And the camp is pretty cool. I heard he basically started with one player breaking into the, like the UCLA gym or some gym in California. And then, because nobody was working with players individually really back then. And that, that, and. He would break into this gym and, like, start working with a player. And then word of mouth, he had all these NBA players. Right. And that video that he had out had about nine NBA All-Stars at this camp and, you know, had just all these players working out. And that's what I heard about the Newell camp. And it was, I mean, you wasn't get those wasn't videos. Wasn't
1: one of his first, you know, like, big clients, uh, Kiki Vandaway? It was Kiki Vandaway, uh, and there was one other guy. And who think, was the guy? Who was the guy? That uh, that knocked out, what's his name? Yeah, Tom Kermit Johnovich.
2: Washington, wasn't it?
1: Kermit Washington. I yeah. think Kermit He was Washington. another big Pete Newell guy. Yeah, I think yeah.
2: Kermit was his first guy, or Kiki, and it just sort of moved in from there. And that's right. when, you know, there wasn't all these trainers and stuff around, obviously. This is back right. in the 70s well, and there,
1: 80s. there couldn't be any trainers. There was no social media.
2: No, and NBA teams would send all these players <laughs> out to work with them, and... uh yeah. yeah it was so pretty, and then and cool then from
1: LA I guess jumped over to Hawaii and became kind of legendary and you know if you've never watched Pete Newell work I was fortunate enough uh my early days at Snow Valley maybe 88 89 Coach Livesey actually brought Coach Newell in to work with the players and and at the time you know he was getting up there in age so Mike Dunlap was was kind of responsible for Coach Newell and he would take him around and and uh you know get him get him to the stations and everything but that's the first time i'd you know actually seen him work with players and he did a lot tell me if i'm wrong Swoochuk, but he was really big on those post guys opening up with a reverse pivot and playing off that reverse pivot
2: yeah he was big on like it was funny because if you go to snow valley they were totally against it but with him (laughs) he 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 was you know both pivot feet because they're post players i think post right. players. Right, in exactly. Opinion, I, in my opinion, I think in the post, in the in a high post, low post, mid post, you could use either foot because he's so close to the rim. But he was big on that, and it opened my eyes because right. when I went to Italy to work um, the Treviso big man camp and the all-Euro camp, uh, Kiki Vandeweghe was there. He was working. He was a GM of the Denver Nuggets at the time. It was right before the Carmelo draft and LeBron draft, and he – you know, I got a chance to work a station with him and he did all that Pete Newell stuff and taught me a lot of stuff about half pivots and things like that. And um, it was great, it was great to learn all that. And I remember trying to write Pete Newell a letter probably late 90s about working the camp and he actually, um, I kick myself now that I don't have it, but he actually wrote me back a handwritten letter obviously telling me to go fuck off and I can't work his camp, but just basically (laughs) in, in a nice way saying, look, you could come out here and watch, but my staff's already full. Right. But um, I remember getting. Ba- hey, to back it re- in the
1: day. Yeah, yeah, that was back in the day when, when coaches actually wrote you. Yeah. You know, wrote and 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 you know, you and I like to reminisce and talk about the old guys quite a bit, but there's 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 guys that still do that. I mean, so a yeah. lot of the older coaches will still write you handwritten notes. But yeah,
2: um, far so let, between. Now,
1: yeah. So. After Coach Newell got gets this big man camp thing going, player development. Uh, the next the next time I really saw it in action was with Coach Gergorich, um, and I think he was you know he had been doing this stuff at UNLV. We didn't we didn't call it that, but he'd been doing you know player development and working with guys in the off season, uh, in the summertime, with the the college players at UNLV. You know he had a young assistant coach with him named John Welch, who's a good friend of ours who was working with him with the Rebels. And he kind of took that model because Tark was was very big on, you know, player development and player improvement. He'd always say, you know, our players get better, our team's going to get better. So he encouraged that. But then Coach Gerg took that uh, into the NBA when he was hired, I believe, with the Sonics. And I'm going to think 93, 94, and they had Gary Payton. And I remember Coach talking about, you know, going chasing Gary around wherever he was, Oakland, Seattle, and uh, working with he. And then, you know, Jason Kidd became, you know, part of that group too.
2: Yeah, back then there was only a couple assistants per NBA team. They don't have 20 right. like they have now. And basically they were just in charge of mostly X's and O's scouting. They did some working with players and drills, general stuff, but no team really invested in, one, in a coach or a group of coaches that would, you know, work with the, you know, chase players down in the in the offseason, go to their hometowns and form bonds and work with them individually as well as work with them individually during the season. It was like pregame mm-hmm. was just like basically players right. going out there and shooting around. Get you know, it wasn't yeah, – yeah, it wasn't – didn't have coaches with them talking to them all the time like they did now. And I think, you know, it went from Coach Newell to Coach Gergerich, um as far as starting that. And I remember – I remember I didn't know anything about him except he was the guy who took over for Tarkanian and retired half and resigned halfway through the year because of some type of a mental breakdown not mental breakdown yeah, but like stress. exhaustion yeah, stress. stress yeah yeah and then yeah. so I didn't know him I just knew the name and I and, and I got his videos and stuff but I, I remember ESPN I wish I still had it when he was in Portland did this thing Mm -hmm. where like they followed him around because he wasn't a big media guy hated when people around him like that coach Gergerich and they like they they saw him in pregame. I'm like holy wow like no I've never seen that happen before I've never seen an individual coach guarding a guy you know like talking about his footwork and all that stuff it was a great segment I'd give 10 grand to get that video again it was like a five minute segment on coach Gergerich and it was pretty cool, you know, just to see what he did, and then just like you know, just like anything else in basketball, a million people tried to copy it and, and try to get people like him to work, you know, to to do all these workouts and stuff.
1: Yeah, my, my first experience, you know, watching him was you know going to Rebels practice in the mid mid eighties, you know. But then my first personal interaction was you know Coach Livesey brought him to Snow Valley. I want to say it was the summer of eighty five, Sweet Chuck. Uh, maybe 86, and he brought him in, you know, to to do some – I think he was doing defensive stuff. And I was like, oh man, this, this is different. You know, here, here's this guy out here, you know, uh, working with these players, sweating with the players, teaching the players, talking to them like you said. And that's when I became, you know, a big fan of not only his but kind of the work that he was doing. And that's, that's something that you and I both were attracted to right away as young coaches. So now – he 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 gets to the NBA and it's like you said, you know, it starts growing and, and copycat league and now teams start hiring, you know, guys specifically for that position, you know, not like, you know, 10 or 12 guys that we see today, but you know, half the teams probably were hiring and investing in one player development coach.
2: Yeah. The first team I ever heard of doing it with the Mavericks back in about 98, 99 when they had Dirk was a little younger just got drafted and they mm-hmm. you know they had Michael Finley and those guys and I remember Mark Cuban invested in Brad like all these ex-players that were ex-Maverick players um Brad Davis Kiki Ke- uh, Vandaway Orlando Blackman those three guys, he, I think even maybe Paul McKeskey, they all worked at <laughs> yeah, Big Mo. The, was he selling? Like,
1: was he selling drills out of his trunk? Not yet, not
2: yet. I think that came later, later in his career. But um,
1: uh, we make fun, but I love Mo. He's a yeah. great guy.
2: But those guys were, you know, that was the first time I, I've ever heard of anybody investing in somebody besides Coach Gerg into like coaches right. that work with players. And I think that Mark Cuban sort of was an innovator in the fact that. Saying that, look, like these are million-dollar assets that we have on our teams. We have to really start employing people that can improve their skills to to obviously take our team to new heights. And I think that that sort of started the trend. And you know, you started like you said, you started seeing, you know, it trickle up a little bit or trickle down, I guess, in people getting hired to work with players individually.
1: Right. So now. This is probably 2000, 2001, 2002, 2003, right around in there, when I, I became really in, invested and interested in kind of this direction for my career, as did you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, we both were fortunate enough uh, to work with Tim Grover, and you especially, you know, there full time, and and me coming in in the summer times because the opportunity that you and Tim gave me, but. From, from there, you know, I got the opportunity to do this, you know, with an NBA team, as did you shortly after. Um, and, but really, when we first started doing this, Sweet Chuck, it was, it was just me and just you. Um, you know, the other assistant coaches, you know, they'd come and help on the court, you know, the, full, the full-time assistants. You know, I remember when I was first with the Bulls, it was, you know, Mike Wilhelm and Bob Osipka, Pete Myers, you know, they would come to help on the, on the court, but really they were assistant coaches involved in all the other stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, was that your experience when you first got to the Mavs? Or were you kind of the only guy? I was the, I was the only guy, and I think
2: what happens just, and correct me if I'm wrong, what usually happens with people who get hired with player development is it's never enough for them. They always get seduced into, I want to go to coaches' meetings. I want to be involved. I want to be, move up into the front of the bench and they they end up in these meetings and the most important thing about working with players is when the coaches are meeting in the morning when these are young guys that don't get minutes that need to need the work they have nobody to work them out. So with me I I never I never ever ever wanted to get in the coaching as far as like, you know, even trying to strategy get in front of the and bench stuff. and strategy yeah. and all that, I had no I had no thoughts about doing that. All I cared about is working with players, getting them better, and, and try to just help the team win that way and just do my job. And that's the problem. When I talked to people at the Mavs when I got there and they said, well, just that, that usually is what happens. Like You have low-level people that get hired in player development that always wants to get in meetings and be involved. And that's not a bad thing. I mean, you just want to move up in your career. but. And that and the player ends up, you know, missing out. So my big thing was I never wanted to be in a meeting. I always wanted to just be there for the players, like get there, you know, try to get on the court with them at 8, thirty, nine o'clock. If a practice started at 10, make sure that right. you're there a couple hours early to get extra work in with the guys. And I think that, you know, that's why there was nobody that really did it individually when I was there in Dallas because everybody wanted to get in meetings and sort of be a part of the coaching staff. I just cared about working with players, and I think that's probably your – I mean, you're a much better coach than I yeah. am as far as the X's and O's, and you enjoy that part of it too. <laughs> I don't enjoy it. I, you think know, I don't know if that's true. but Well, it, come on. Let's it's, be honest. I've, I've done it. But, I mean, I've done it. But yeah, you're really so. fucking good at it. I'm not saying you're a genius at it, but you're really good at it. I'm just too fucking stupid to be good at it. I, I, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So, like, uh, individual player development to me, it, it sort of fits because I'm fixated on that. You know, so that's the thing. I think that's the biggest problem early on with this thing in player development that everybody tried to be involved in the coaches' meetings and the coaching part of it, and then they just sort of left that – they got – they knew they can get in with player development, but that's not why they wanted to be there. They wanted, you know, to go on to higher and bigger things. And let's be honest, back then in 2000 to 2010, 12 player development wasn't all that sexy. It was something that got you in, but you knew you wanted to be in front of the bench to get money, to get more money, to get in the pension and get more power and things like that, in my opinion, right. the way I
1: saw it. No, no. And, you know, when I first came in in 2008 and you came in to the Mavs, I don't know, 13. 2010, 13. Yeah. Uh, okay, so we've seen it even grow in the last, you know, 10 years to where now, you know, almost every NBA team has a minimum, I would say, of five guys. You know, they'll probably have a a director of player development and then four or five, you know, assistants under them. And what we found now is most of these uh, coaches being hired, uh, you know, teams want younger guys that maybe have played in college, played in the NBA, but can still actually get on the court And play Because now what I've found in talking to coaches throughout the league is the player development staff, they want guys that can play and scrimmage against the low-minute guys or scrimmage with the guys coming back from injury. Uh, They want guys that can actually get out there and play. And that's probably more important than being able to get out there and teach. What what are your thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, uh, I'm not a huge fan of it. But I think it's very much overrated about playing defense on guys, maybe because I can't do it. But but, um, but we
1: do see that as a trend. Would you that agree? is a
2: huge trend. I think I think for the most part, they want to train their own people. I want. I think they want to train right. them the way they want them to work with players. I don't think they like taking older people unless they're really good at it. I think they wanna They would rather train their own people to work exactly the way they want them to work, with no real original thought or ideas about, on their own. This way, they could run their system more efficiently and effectively. And I think that that's a big thing. They want young guys or girls, preferably ones who played that has size, mm-hmm. that could sort of you know replicate what they what a, a player is going to face, the best to their ability. To, sure. to, to try to get younger people, to try to defend them, run around, and learn their system the, the way they want to teach it.
1: Yeah, we're not, we're not being critical. We're just pointing out that that's, that's kind of the trend of the NBA today, and that's that's kind of how it's going in the player development uh, player development side of it. And, and it still comes down to, you know, no matter if it's one person or if it's 10 people working with players, I think it still comes down to, having the ability to teach, Uh whatever it is, you know, whatever the skill is, offense, defense, you know, having the ability to get on the floor and, and actually explain and teach and correct the players.
2: Yeah. I think that's, that's a major part in player development. I, I think that in my opinion, Sev, like you got to be able to teach and correct, you know, the, that's the biggest thing. Like, first of all, you got to know where that player is going to fit in. What skill sets that needs to be really developed to get into a high-level game? I don't care if it's high school, college, or pro. And then you, you, you're you going to have to be able to teach them the little things, the skill sets, and the and the reps on those things that, that they're going to need to be able to do and get them in that mind frame and then that, that mindset. And then you're going to have to correct when they make mistakes to get them back on the path on things that they have to correct to get them better. And that's the hardest part. A, you've got to be able to stop things. Right. B, you're going to have to sell the player on the fact that you know what you're talking about. And, and be able to have the presence with the player, and basically teach in short bursts on how to correct that mistake, and then get them back on the right path.
1: Yeah, you can't be uh, you can't be, be bad Christmas.
2: No, why you stealing my fucking line, Steph? Come well, on. Well, I'm
1: just gonna, I'm gonna let
2: you go with it. Bad Christmas, sweet child. Well, No presents. I mean, does anybody want to be anybody want to wake up on Christmas morning and have fucking? You know, that's gonna be a bad Christmas in my fucking book, to be honest. You walk down the steps, you see no no presents. I remember when we we had a bunch of people that we knew that were trying to get in the business, and you saw the players react to them. It didn't matter if they were a player or not player, and they just had no presence where they could have players stick to what they're trying to tell them or teach them. And I remember, yeah, you know, I said, "Steph, that's bad Christmas." And you're like, "What do you mean, Sweet Chuck? Bad Christmas?" I said, "No fucking presents." And you, you, we were at uh, Santa Barbara and fucking um, yeah Jordan, Jordan, Jordan camp, camp when we got when we sort of came up with that probably like i don't know oh five no oh two oh three or something like that
1: but yeah when you and you and i would rent bikes for 10 days and and you know because at jordan camp you had to walk like a half a mile to the gym so sweet chuck and i rented these beach cruisers for like 10 days and i had to spend the first day teaching sweet chuck how to ride a bike to be honest with you but after that after sweet chuck got it yeah you you might be the worst bike rider i've ever seen but by about the third by the third or fourth day sweet chuck you had it down
2: yeah, I was like the three millionth best fucking bike rider in California, and by the time that camp was out, I was the two point nine nine millionth worst fucking. Uh, yeah,
1: and at UCSB, it's like nothing but bikes, you know. Yeah, and yeah you so, fit right in, Sweet Chuck.
2: So, anyway, Sev. So, player development. Go ahead. So, what do we? What do we? What else we talk? So that's about? you know, we just
1: kind of wanted to get our listeners a little bit of the history behind it, and you know where it's at currently. And I, what we're seeing now more, Sweet Chuck, uh, than we have is college coaches becoming interested in it. Uh, I know that mm-hmm. there's people that you and I know that actually go and speak to college staffs on player development. Uh, college, mm-hmm. you know, Colleges are now even paying to bring guys in to do player development seminars for their assistant coaches. Because let's be honest, college coaches, you know, that's probably... You know, fifth on their list of priorities behind recruiting, yeah, scheduling, academics. You know, uh, and, and chasing chasing the knuckleheads around. So you know, it's become more and more prevalent and important to college programs. Also,
2: yeah, I mean, look, the, most times, if you think about it, like okay, so you've got the like the Miami Heat, Lakers. You know, who what, Phoenix Suns, Milwaukee Bucks, whatever. You get the highest of the highs. Most play, teams aren't going to be built like that where they have all these great players and you know, they could compete every year for a championship. In the college level, you don't have the Dukes, the UCLAs, the Kentuckys. Most programs are like bottom of the barrel, even the mid the, the mid level ones. So the only way that you can get better as a team is if you can evaluate talent. And bring in like diamonds in the rough people that no one else is going to recruit don't think they can play and then you you basically take somebody who's going to be a blue chipper in three or four years and then you're not only you could identify talent but also develop it so I think that player development and talent evaluation are two things that at any level high school college or pro mostly college pro that you need to invest in because if you can't get those middle and and that's the thing Sev I think that People think that, like, you could work out LeBron James passing the ball a few times and then you could pat yourself in the back like you developed LeBron James. That that ain't that ain't player development at the NBA level. The NBA level is taking second-round picks, undrafted players, free agents that's three, four years in their career that haven't done shit yet and turn them into serviceable players. So I think that if you could have people right. that could take players and, like, take the 11th best player on your team and make them the 8th best player on your team – and so on and so on, and down the line like that. If you could take a bunch of those lo- like lower depth chart players and bring them into the middle of your rotation, maybe you could develop into a starter, great. But if you could take those guys and develop them into middle rotation guys, so now you can have all these minimum salary players that are really overproducing, and then you could keep them together, you're gonna make everything else better for your team. And that's what really true player development is, it's not getting guys that could work with great players, like I always say, it like be Dominique Wilkins' jump coach. You don't. They, he doesn't need a fucking strength coach to make him a, a fucking weeper. <laughs> he was a god given weeper. So when you have, I love these people who could work out these great high school players, at McDonald's All Americans, and like pat themselves in the back. I'm like, hey asshole, the guy was six nine with a fifty inch vertical before he met you. All right, and that's getting recruited by every school in the country just because you put them through some dan- fucking Fred Astaire dance steps and rebound them and have a video crew next to you doesn't mean you're a fucking player development guy. I want to know the I want to know the trainers that got the guys who weren't getting recruited by anybody, and then by the time they were done with them, become fucking mega stars or or like really good players. I want to know the people who took those the you know the misfit toys and fucking turned them into something where. Like, they turned them into really good players. Not great players, but good players. Those are the real player development people. And ain't the people who could take and, Kevin and, Durant, and that happen-
1: Durant. And that can happen at any level. I mean, if you're a high school coach, and, and if high school coaches are interested in our thoughts on, like, player development and skill development within a high school program, uh, I think that would be our second episode that we did last week, Sweet Chuck, that specifically talked about high schools. Um, but... But what you're talking about happen can happen at any level. I mean, if you can take the tenth guy from a high school team and, you know, make him the seventh guy or, or, or the seventh guy and make him a starter, um, you know, that's that's true, you know, success in player development. Yeah, um, and, and I, I, you know, and at the highest level, it's all about, you know, increasing the the value of that asset.
2: What the NBA player at the NBA level said, like I said, like, you know. Look, nobody wants to go to some of these small market teams. You know, like Minnesota, Oklahoma City, you know, no offense to those teams or anything. It's just like if you look at the Memphis, if you study free agency, like the big timers, when these big time players right. that are available, they don't want to go to those small market teams unless you have a chance to win a championship. So they go to the big market teams. So as a small market team, and I think you have to think about every situation in player development like you're a small market team. Where are like, okay, well, we got to take the players that we draft and we have to take these second round picks that we get, not just the lottery picks, but the second round picks, the late first rounders, the undrafted, the players from our summer league team, the players that we bring in from, you know, Spain, you know, that that play, that's been playing overseas, we need to turn them into serviceable NBA players. So we need to get two sure. or three coaches that could bring these players and then really turn them into good serviceable rotation players. We could continue to sign those players for cheap, and then we'll have enough of them where now we could compete. And and then if some of these lottery picks that we have turn into really good players, put them with the stable of good players that our player development has produced, and then we can pony all this up to either trade for a great player or acquire a great player through a trade or free agency because we have all these players that could. They could really help us. It. So it's sort of what's you know, it's sort of what happens with Miami when they when they develop all these players that were undrafted, the you know the the Robinsons of the world or the Kendrick Nuns of the world, and it could really develop those guys that were late picks to undrafted. Yeah, you know, and you see it. You and see I it think in Memphis it, you now.
1: know, yeah, I was just going to say Memphis. You know, we don't want to get too specific no. on NBA teams, but no. but you know, Memphis does a really good OKC you know, is another example um, of teams that done that. So we've kind of taken the listeners through what we, we see as kind of the history of this thing, the last 40 years or so. Mm -hmm. Um, So hopefully, hopefully they got, you know, some, some new thinking and some new thoughts on, you know, exactly, you know, where this, this thing, player development evolved from. Um, So that's that, Sweet Chuck. Um, as as usual, we finish up with you know things I'd like to change in the game. So here's my uh, here's my rant for the week, and I and I put a lot of thought into this, and I don't understand why that the NBA has a five minute overtime during the regular season. Yeah, you know, to to me, that's just too long. Like the other night, we saw a three overtime game, in which five of the starters, I believe it was Toronto, all played over 50 minutes. And I think it was like more like 53, 54 minutes. So now in the playoffs, I totally agree with the five-minute overtime. That's fine. But where, where did the number five come from for overtime? And, you know, why does it need to be so long? Um, my proposal would be either, here's what I'd really like to see in the regular season, Sweet Chuck. Overtime games in the NBA First team to seven points wins, or a three-minute overtime. Um, I, I just think I just think five minutes is so long uh, of an overtime. Now playoffs is different. I understand. I'm cool with that. But what do you think of? Hey, let's just play to seven, or let's play three minutes in an overtime game. That's the change I'd like to see made in the NBA. What are your thoughts, Sweet Joe? Yeah, I'm
2: glad you put a lot of thought into this shit because I haven't thought about it <laughs> for ten fucking seconds. <laughs> <laughs> um, to me i don't really care i get i get what you're saying though with the five minute deal but ah, i'll yeah, tell you what on. though if you're the team that like gives up the first seven points you definitely want those fucking full five minutes you know um but if you're yeah like well guys, maybe maybe if
1: they knew they were playing to the seven they wouldn't be you know they wouldn't slack off for the first two and a half minutes. that's a
2: good point too it's a good point too I, I just think
1: the seven you know it's like all right we're gonna play the seven like a pickup game and you know, I think that would really make it exciting, and I think we saw a little bit of that Sweet Chuck in the All Star game last year. What would they do? They had to play to like what was it, twenty four in honor of Kobe or something?
2: Well, they had that rule that the first they,
1: team to score twenty four wins the game or well, something. Well, they
2: started they started that rule Sev, with the um, with the uh, the tournament the that that two million dollar tournament. They've got uh, the TBT. rule. The TBT has the rule. Um, uh huh. So, like, the TBT came up with that. Oh, what, what hold on, TBT. Yeah, I, I, I know
1: it's some sort of a concept it's not where, the you know, you're not, pl- you're not playing time. You're playing you're playing not to score.
2: Yeah, fuck, what was it? Oh, the Elam ending. That was it. It was yeah. big. Ba- <laughs> did,
1: did you say Magruder?
2: Yeah, no, the Zer- no. I was going to say the Zeruder, Zeruder film. Zer- uh, Zer- You've Zer- been film. watching
1: too much JFK conspiracy stuff Without child.
2: question. No, the Elam ending. Yeah, you and ending. our guy Lombardi. Yeah, I love that. But no, the Elon ending—it's basically like
1: <laughs> that's it. Yeah. Some
2: kind of a formula. What you got to Elon after
1: the school or after the uh, Tesla guy? I
2: think I really fucking know Sev.
1: I think it's after the school.
2: Yeah, I would think so too. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think you, I, I think you could definitely get it better. You know, I think you could definitely oh, get. Yeah. You know, play to 10, 7, whatever it is.
1: That's something you know, to you know for the rules committee. I think to look at, but. Yeah, it probably never happen.
2: the gamblers would probably tell you otherwise that, you know if you're, if, you get, if you're if you're betting on a team minus four and a half you definitely want the five minutes and not to play yeah, and, no play the fucking seven but no, I totally get what you're saying. you're trying to you know, put some energy into it and sure
1: put some sure new yeah, got something a little different, a little interest anyway, that's our change for the week. Anything else before we wrap up, Sweet Chuck?
2: ah. Uh, I guess in the player development stuff with the with the NBA teams, probably the psychology of it. I think more um, hiring more people in psychology and, and well, sort of yeah. talk to players. You know,
1: that's another trend that we've seen. It's like I'd probably say almost every team has has that position now, team psychology, and especially in the last two years with all the mental health stuff that we've seen come about.
2: Yeah, I, I really think that it's an important before the mental health stuff started coming out. I thought it was something I never even thought about. And then when I got to Dallas, we obviously had Don Coxstein.
1: Ah, the best. Yeah, it
2: was the best in the league at it. But, like, how important talking to the player is, not only on the issues that they have mentally to try to help them, but, like, the issues that they have in their own development, especially with the young player that doesn't really understand the ins and outs of the league on what they should be doing to not only on the court but off the court to develop routine and things like that. To make them a better pro, I think that those things are important, and I think that you, even if you're not educated in that realm, you don't have a degree for it, you could still be serviceable at it as far as talking and listening to a player. Wow! And it could really—that's
1: that's you know that's part of being a successful you know player development coach or coach at any level now, as we see more and more uh, of the importance of, of that part of it. Yeah. Uh, not just being able to get on the court and teach and do this and that but you know the ability to talk to players to connect with players uh, words, are, words are powerful words have meaning and I you know you have to be able to deal with players on that level and on that side of it as well that's one of the really good things and not to kiss your ass sweet Chuck but that's that's one of the really good things that I thought you did uh, when you were at Dallas is your ability to talk to guys and connect with them and so anyway, that's that, that's enough praise for you for one.
2: <laughs> yeah, I don't think I need enough of it, but um, <laughs> I think I, I think that it's an important part of it because I think that when you when you get into the league and when I got into the league, I thought it was mostly going to be drills and, and mostly on the court work, and then I, what I found was I think I thought it was almost more off the court development in players as far as talking to them, talking about their role, holding them accountable to in a pro every day. And, and sort of be in that voice in the area constantly, um, I think those are important right. things that, you know, you could really, especially those players that are deep in your road, roti- deep in the depth chart, that that can never survive. They never have people talking to them because they, no one cares about them, you know, no one cares about the twelfth man. Let's be honest at any level, no one gives two fucks about those guys. And I think if you could really and and,
1: and... go ahead. Well, that goes back to the the line, what was the TV show? Uh, you know, everyone matters or nobody matters.
2: Yeah, it was Harry Bosch, but yeah, true. Harry I mean, Bosch, there yeah, we go. They, and it's, I think that every player could try to help a team in a certain way, but you need to have a plan for every player. And I think talking to every player constantly about how they can get themselves better and better their situation. I think it's important. I think the psychology of basketball is so important when developing players because I, I don't think players just want somebody who's going to work them out and then shut up and then, and 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 not talk to them. I think they I think they're human beings, especially the ones that aren't playing. The ones that are playing don't give a fuck because everybody's trying to wash their nuts anyway. But <laughs> like not, I think that player. I think people that are deep in rotations need somebody that's going to, it's sort of like NASCAR. You need that person talking to you on the headset. That's going to like stay you out of harm's way. I think that the psychology of basketball is such an important part of it.
1: I think that's, that's great. Sweet Chuck. So that's it. As we wrap up episode three, um, we'll talk to you next week. And until then, you've been caught in the net with Mike and Dave.
2: Oh, wow. That's a catch. That's a catchy ending. Joe Rogan, eat your fucking heart out. Yeah, don't fuck this one up we, We ain't doing another hour Yeah